You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan White. Welcome to the B&H Photography Podcast. Before we sally forth, a reminder to take a moment and rate us on iTunes, leave a review, and definitely tell your friends about us. We love doing the show, and your feedback helps us make every show that much better. Today, John Harris and I will be talking with Michael Cunningham, a retired detective, first grade of the New York Police Department and crime scene unit expert, who is currently a manager at Leeds LLC, a company that provides solutions and software for investigation, incident, and intelligence management. He's also the author of Crime Scene Unit Management, A Path Forward. Today's episode is one that John and I have been looking forward to doing for quite some time, and we owe a tip of the hat to our colleague Jill Waterman for helping us get in touch with today's guests. We often talk about gear, technique, and the art of photography on the show. You know, the, the, the sexy stuff, the stuff that you, me, and every other photographer all like chatting about. But today we're going to focus on a very practical working application of photography, specifically crime scene unit photography. Anyone who's seen a police drama on TV is familiar with the officer on a windbreaker taking photos of the crime scene. But today we'd like to dig a bit deeper to understand how crime scene photography really, really works, what goes through the mind of a forensic photographer as he or she surveys a scene, what shots are crucial, how are the images stored and ultimately utilized in solving and prosecuting a crime. Welcome, Mike. Great uh, to have you here. Thanks, Alan. It's my pleasure. Um, let's start. Just give us a brief background of how you got into this in the first place. Uh, back in 1986, I joined the NYPD, went into the police academy, and uh, did a decade or so on patrol right here in midtown Manhattan many of those years, and eventually found my way into the forensic end of police work, uh, first in fingerprints and then eventually into the crime scene unit. Was the crime scene unit aspect of it something you were interested in at the beginning, or is it just kind of a path that, that, that took its own life? Um, yeah, I was interested uh, pretty early on in police work. I, I first got introduced to fingerprint work and, you know, simple burglaries that a patrol officer might respond to. Um, and I found that uh, area of police work fascinating, and I sort of picked up a skill of being able to develop fingerprints. And some of those led to some good quality arrests to be able to solve some local burglary patterns and sort of propelled my career into further into forensics and then eventually into a promotion to the crime scene unit. I gotcha. So when you started, I guess it's safe to assume it was all film photography? Uh, definitely. Back in all <laughs> film photography, uh, my first camera was a, a Nikon F3 in crime scene work. Okay. Is it easy to kind of draw a, a personality profile of, of, of officers that go into crime scene unit uh, or even the photographers? Is there a, a path or a, that they follow or is there a, an interest level? Yeah, it's somebody that has uh, some type of skills. Cer certainly somebody with good photography skills would be a natural fit. Uh, but there's other aspects too. Maybe somebody with drafting skills would be really good at drawing crime scene diagrams hmm. or somebody with good mechanical skills uh, could use those type of vocational skills and to other aspects of, of forensics. Um, so, so there's a lot of different avenues, but uh, a, a love for photography is definitely something that, that would lead to uh, that, and that you, position. Do you see people coming in, that's what they want to do right when they start out? They want to get into the, the photography end of it? Or? Yeah, and you know, if we look back, say, until the early 1970s, forensic work was 
crime scene photography and maybe some fingerprint work. After 19, early 1970s, forensics started to really play a bigger role. So up till I think 1972 in the NYPD, it was the photo, photograph unit. You know, and then through the 1970s where forensics started to play a bigger and bigger role in, in law enforcement and solving crimes, that's when things evolved into crime scene units where investigators were trained not only in photography but also in developing fingerprints, recovering DNA, recognizing other types of forensic evidence, impressions and tool marks and things like that could, that they realized could also be helped to solve crimes. You, you mentioned something earlier. You used the phrase technical and mechanical skills as, as some of the attributes of people who, should, who would go be, go be going into this field. Right. How important is that today? Because digital technologies has sort of replaced the uh, mechanical end of it. It does a lot of things automatically. Has it changed that way? Is it sort of easier to, or is it just different to get into the field now? Uh, definitely a little bit different. Uh, we, uh, in New York City now, the crime scene detectives actually carry uh, their cell phones where they could access the their digital case management system, enterprise case management, or what they call a form system now, find us online records, uh, where they could actually access records about the cases they're investigating right out there in the field. So technology has definitely changed the way it's done. Is there a standardization for a lot of this? I mean, I, I remember at 9-11, there was a lot of chaos because every, every department had their own communication system. But is, is it sort of centralized or is it a lot of different individual groups that sometimes compare notes? Uh, the move, at least in the forensic side of law enforcement, is definitely towards standardization. There's a push for accreditation so that all forensic investigators are certified, all forensic investigation units are accredited by a nationally accepted uh, accreditation agency. So there's a, a huge push right now uh, for standardization. And is there also what, like centralization between, say, city, states, and federal agencies for a lot of these things, depending on the uh, what kind of crime it is, I guess? Yeah, there's definitely a clear delineation of who handles what type of a, a crime, who performs what task, uh, limit overlap, and make sure there's no gaps. I, How does that, I'm sorry. Yeah. How does that come down to the photographer? I mean, will there be photographers from each agency at a, at a location or not necessarily? Uh, let's say at a major uh, incident. Uh, just recently in New York, there was uh, a, a homemade explosive device that exploded and a second one that was found and uh, disarmed before it exploded. Of course, that type of incident draws many law enforcement agencies in, into the scene to investigate. But there is coordination at that scene. There's an investigative command post that will be set up and that command post will dictate who's going to perform what task. One of them would be the crime scene photography. Of course, that would be a critical task that would have to be done early on in the investigation before things are disturbed or things change. Um, so somebody would be assigned that task as a crime scene photographer and not multiple people. If it was multiple people, it'd be in zones. So some one photographer may, may be assigned to document a particular zone and another photographer a different zone, but not overlap where the same photographer is working the same positions. So see, how does the, the robbery of a bodega here in Midtown differ from the, the example you just gave where there was a bomb that went off on 23rd and another one found a few blocks away on 7th Avenue? That was not just a local thing. That went into state and federal. So who, who has priority over looking at the scene first? Who gets first dibs? Is it the feds, state, city? Uh, it's city. Everything starts and ends as a local matter. So, okay. Uh, first would be the city or the local law enforcement agency. 
And if there's assistance needed by a state or a larger, larger law enforcement agency, they could then reach out and request that assistance. Or if there's some federal statutes involved, then reach out and request assistance from the FBI. Obviously, if you're going to do your job right, things have to be untouched. Is it, do, do most offices get that? Or is there a lot of respect of not moving anything around before you guys come in and do your job? Uh, yeah, that's something that's uh, taught very early on in the first days of the police academy. So it's something that's really, really embedded in, in the mind of a law enforcement officer that things can't be disturbed. Of course, there's, there's exigencies. There's, you, know, you might arrive at a scene and there, there's life-saving uh, efforts that have to take place or there's a search for uh, a suspect. Um, some things have to take priority. But once those emergencies are, are addressed, then the officers know pretty quickly to lock it down, protect the scene, and let's go through the process of documenting the scene properly. How's the process work? How does a photographer get called? Are they on duty? Are they waiting? And, uh, and when they get there... What's their checklist? What are they going to do, first of all? Okay, so uh, let's walk through the process, John. So first thing is typically 911 is notified that some incidents happened, and police officers respond, patrol officers. They address the immediate emergency. They search for suspects. They render aid, and they secure the scene. And once it's secured, they'll notify the crime scene unit. In New York City, the crime scene unit works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's always crime scene investigators that are available to respond and as you could guess, they're pretty busy. So they work out of a central location, but cover the whole city. And they're moving around quite a bit, but they're always available. So they'll be notified. They'll respond to the scene. And upon arrival, they want to gain some real basic facts. They'll interview the officers on the scene and do a walkthrough of the scene, but just a real cursory look at the scene so they could start to make a plan on how to process it. First step, really, in processing the scene is going to be photography. Nothing could be disturbed. Nothing could be moved. Nothing could be collected until photography is done. There's an expectation that the crime scene will be documented in photos, also in a sketch and measurements, but primarily in photographs so that we have a permanent record of the scene as it was when the police found it. So, what about video? I'm sorry, and, and video at this point? Video is becoming much more popular now with the the ability to have small devices and the ease of video has gotten so much so much better. Um, but video has some limitations. Um, it it's, could be still difficult to show in a courtroom. Um, audio is sometimes a problem. What you want to record is the video, but if you get audio too, you might get background noise and could be confusing to a jury. Um, and what do you videotape? Uh, how long do you linger on a particular subject? It could start to put bias in, into it. So still photography is, is really the preferred method. And are the officers at that point thinking ahead to the prosecution and, and the trial? Or is it still at this point just the solving of the case or, or they, they blend one, one together? Yeah, um, early on, uh, it, it's a teamwork approach. So a detective, usually from the local precinct, is assigned to the case. They're the ones ultimately responsible with solving the case, making an arrest, bringing the case to some conclusion somehow. The other players, like the crime scene investigator, are his teammates, basically. They're going to come in and support him. Um, he's got a lot of work to do. He might have interviews to do. He might be out looking for witnesses. The crime scene investigator processes the scene, documents it, searches for evidence, collects evidence, processes evidence. Um, but all of that information that the crime scene investigator collects 
serves a few purposes. One, to inform the investigator who's ultimately charged with closing the case. And then two, if the case results in an arrest, presenting it as fact in court. So both of those things are in their mind early on when they're processing the scene. When you started, what kind of camera? You said you'd use an F3. Yeah. What other kind of gear did you use in the analog days? And I'd like to ask about some of the digital equipment that's going on now. Uh, when I first got to the unit, F1s were popular. I was lucky enough to get an F3. Um, and then we moved on. We moved to the uh, Nikon F100. We were always a Nikon shop. Okay. Um, and we, we moved on uh, to the F100s. And then in the early 2000s, started exploring digital options. That was slow to be ad adopted in law enforcement. How skeptical were you? Yeah, uh, there was a lot of skeptics. Because uh, it was it, crude, it was crude yeah. back then yeah, and yeah. expensive. Yeah. Um, how would it work? How would it be stored? Would it be admissible? Could it be altered? Uh, all major issues. You that, just that, actually yeah. said something pretty important because I know that when digital first came around, uh, JPEGs could obviously be easily manipulated, but raw files at the time when they first came out were considered usable in court because they could not be altered. That's not necessarily true anymore. H how do you make sure that the integrity of the original file stays the way it is without being diddled with? So you can hash, use security hashes uh, on these files as they're from the time they're captured to the time they're uploaded to a device, put in a security hash and then be able to tell if the file's been altered later on. Um, we found that a real effective method was to shoot uh, in both RAW and JPEG. We would use the JPEGs as the photos that would be shared with investigators, photos that would be printed. And we would keep the RAWs as sort of the digital negative. If somebody alleged that or questioned the authenticity of, of the JPEG photo, we could always go back and retrieve the the uh, raw file and compare the two and see if they were so the same. So that's still considered the gold standard? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Are there any incidences that you can think of where, where images have been manipulated and, and called into question? Early on, that was all the fear, and it, it really slowed down by years, the adopt, adoption of digital photography and forensics. In the end, maybe those years were good because the systems that were put in place, the thought process that was put into it, uh, has really prevented any kind of major problems from, from occurring. And today, digital is accepted as, as just routine. It's, it's really not questioned the, just the way a 35-millimeter uh, negative would be accepted. And, for example, there are, like, write-only write memory cards and, and cards that, you know, in data that can be encrypted. Do you utilize those? Or um, no, we did consider them. We, do, we, we did uh, specify some high-quality cards, but they, they weren't necessarily write-only. Early on, we considered, well, let's use the card and actually invoice the card, the, uh, you know, if we were using an SD card or a compact flash card, to actually invoice the card as evidence. Um, of course, that would have been very expensive, especially back in those days. Uh, so we, we opted not to do that. But there are a lot of law enforcement agencies that will do that. They'll mm -hmm. use the card one time, they'll invoice it as evidence, and it'll just remain like that forever. And so is it the photographer's responsibility then to, to reformat a card and, and uh, just go back and use the same one again? Yeah. yeah. Um, so in the NYPD, yeah, it's the photographer's responsibility to reformat the card. Mm -hmm. Of course, first there's a process of making a couple of uh, archive copies uploading to a server. The server allows us to share uh, the photos in very short amount of time with the investigators who ultimately are the people we were capturing the photos for. Um, 
So through the case management system, those photos could be uploaded and shared you know, across networks. And is there a protocol for, for deleting images or...? Yeah, there is a protocol for deleting images, and it's never delete an image. Okay. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's pretty um, clear. If yeah. we could find a camera that had no delete button, that would make us happy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, even if out in the field, if a, you know, a photographer accidentally hits the shutter release and, and an image is captured, we record that image, it goes into the case file, and we just explain it. It's listed as a, you know, a erroneous image. Right. So the, the gear is pretty much standard consumer available gear that you're using, right? Yeah. Um, for, for forensics, it's, it's the higher quality and professional quality photography equipment um, because the requirements for some of the photographs that are captured are, are very high. Mm-hmm. In New York City, we use full-frame digital SLRs. Um, we, we only use full-frame sensors. So it, we were a Nikon shop, and we typically right now they're using Nikon D700s, the 800s, as they transition to newer models. Um, but full-frame sensors and professional quality camera bodies. I, I would imagine that the later generation digital imagery is far superior and useful than film pictures because of the dynamic range, especially when shooting at night and in dark areas, because the sensors today just see into the shadows and see things that even with a flash you might miss. That's my assumption. Yeah, uh, especially for surveillance work. Yeah. Right. Where yeah, you could capture these low-light photos without giving away your position. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but in forensic work, we still try to keep noise, control noise by using very uh, low ISOs. Yeah. Mm, interesting. And always with fa- flash? Yeah. Uh, always with flash, yeah, yeah. in yeah. forensic work because we have the, the we have the luxury of having at least some amount of time to be able to set up lights and flash and, and control the lighting of our subjects. You'll bring um, lights? Yeah. yeah. Um, NYPD, uh, you'll see them out at scenes. You'll see them on the news with the uh, crime scene vans. And in those vans, each one of those vans is stocked with a, uh, a studio light kit, a small portable studio light kit. What about lenses? Ideally, normal lens. Mm-hmm. So a 50 millimeter lens is what they'll use. Is that in order um, to avoid distortion? It's, yeah. So it's so that all spatial thing, everything is spatially correct. Yeah. When you visual, okay. Absolutely. But there's some leeway to that. Sometimes you, know, you just need a wider angle. Um, so so there's definitely some leeway. Um, 28 millimeter to 70 millimeter zoom lens is pretty standard for them. Um, but a lot of training goes into, even if they're using the variable... Uh, lens, a lot of the training goes into sticking very close to that normal lens, 50 millimeter um, f- frame. And it depends on the type of photo. So there's a methodical process for documenting the scene. The first set of photos is overview photos. It's really just intended to give the viewer an idea of what the scene looked like. Mm-hmm. No real detail about evidence or positioning or context, just a wide angle view. So it may be acceptable to use wider angles in those type of photos. But as you get into close-up photos, or even what we call mid-range view photos, where you're establishing the context between a piece of evidence and some fixed point in the scene, uh, the the normal lens is critical. Makes sense to me. Something I've been curious about um, with digital imaging specifically is that um, if you were to take some of the original digital files that you had back when the equipment first started becoming available, a lot of those files are in formats that don't necessarily open very well and not really good. How often do you transmigrate data from older cases to newer 
storage media to make sure, because you have to ensure that the stuff will be retrievable 10, 20 years down the line, which is not a given when it comes to digital. Yeah, uh, that's definitely true, Alan. Er- early on, the you know, the they were Nikon proprietary formats that we were shooting in. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had to be careful to make sure we are also archived the software that could open that. You know, so it may not be available in 50 years. Uh, so we had to make sure we archived copies of that. And any kind of software we use today, most most of the formats are, are not uh, proprietary. Um, but anything that is used is also archived. So the even, even the storage media, the type of what you're storing it on, is also has to be changed every X amount of years. Yeah, um, the NYPD now is in their second decade of digital photography, and the early on, uh, a lot of the photos were stored on a compact disc. They were backed up onto servers, uh, but the original raw photos were st- stored on compact disc. The compact discs that we used are what's called evidence grade. Um, so they're very high quality compact discs and they were rated uh, to last, assuming they were stored properly, a uh, minimum of 30 years. So yeah, there's going to have to be some consideration. And it was written into the procedures early on that that had to be recognized that those those photos are going to have to be rolled over to new medium at some point. And, and when transferring or, or sharing images between investigations or even agencies, again, there must be a protocol. And, and do you put things on hard drives and, and then and then physically take them to places? Or? Yeah, sh- sharing within the agency is real easy. Yeah, because there's online case management systems. Upload copies of the photos; they're secure, and they could be shared. Anyone within the agency who has authorization could access the photos. Um, that's easy, um, and it, it's very efficient. Outside of the agency, of course, is different. People outside of the agency, like the district attorney who has to process the case, or the defense attorney who's also entitled to a copy to defend his client, how do they get copies? So, um, and they, they get those copies by sending a subpoena to the crime scene unit, and the crime scene actually burns, crime scene unit will burn them a copy of those photos onto disk. Mm. You'd mentioned that everything is now on the cloud. Uh, but there's a specific cloud that's just for, for police officer work. Is that correct? Yeah. So there is secure clouds that are specifically for law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, so as law enforcement moves storage to the cloud, that solves a lot of problems with, with storage. Originally, you know, we were you know, putting new racks in to back up storage and increase storage space. Um, but that's all solved now with the cloud. Um, of course, the problem is security. But with the... Uh, uh, secure cloud that's available for law enforcement. It's much less of an issue than general what, cloud What company storage. is it that you um, I know Microsoft has Microsoft Azure Cloud where uh, a lot of law enforcement uh, okay. files are stored. Hacking, I think, in the cloud, uh, of course, is always a concern. It's, it's something that IT professionals have to very seriously look at and study. Um, but it's, it's not an overriding concern for technicians, for crime scene investigators in the field. But what we do in the field with wireless technologies and things like that is much more pertinent to day-to-day operations. Can you use Wi-Fi, um, a Wi-Fi enabled camera? Um, right now, I'm not using it because you know, we have to make sure that safe, it fits yeah. the need, yeah, and it's yeah, safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you did mention that now every officer in the field is given a phone, and with that phone they have access, if, if they're entitled to that access, they can, they can go to these files, they can get the images that they need without... Uh, just on their phone. Right? Yeah, I mean, just on the, the phone. So yeah. they're not using some external devices. They're using phones that were issued to them by the police department. Mm-hmm. In the news world, there's a photographer and then there's the editor. 
is there a, uh, something that's uh, equivalent to an editor, someone who is really looking at every image that comes in and, and analyzing it? Or has that become the job of the investigator or the photographer themselves? Yeah, it pretty much becomes the, the job of the investigator. There is quality control. So mm -hmm. a lot of the photos will be reviewed, but not everyone. That, that'll be a uh, you know, sporadic basis where just a quality control procedure to, to uh, examine photographs and make sure photos are being captured properly. Mm -hmm. Do you find that there are, are, are guys or girls that, uh, that shoot too much or, or too little or there's technical issues and, and you have to you know, you have to touch the photos in, in Photoshop, or is that just totally un, uh, not done? Well, let me put it this way. There's, there's levels of enhancement, um, and there's procedures, there's, there's guidance given by Department of Justice. I imagine you, you uh, can't – creative expression is not part of this <laughs> equation. No, no. They took, they took that out. They took that out. <laughs> um, we have no. to add clouds. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, are there guys that goof around and, like, they're going to get a picture, you know, of somebody, or is that just – no, no it not, yeah. wouldn't be tolerated. <laughs> um, but but there are there are uh, acceptable enhancements, and there's different levels. So simple enhancements like uh, you know contrast and brightness yeah. uh, um, are are fine. Um, I imagine there's so, also shadow and highlight where you hit it and just all the shadows just open up yeah. in one button. I yeah. mean that's that. I imagine that would be pretty handy for you. Yeah, um, and and those are fine and they're acceptable according to federal guidelines. Um, without really any documentation. We will preserve the original. We'll never enhance the original. We'll always have a working copy. Um, okay, there's your raw file. That's right. Yeah. If anybody questions it, you go right back. Yeah. And then there's level two enhancements that may, you know, color channels and, and, and all sorts of different techniques, especially in fingerprint work where you want to eliminate a background to bring out a uh, fingerprint. Um, much more detailed enhancements those require that every step of the enhancement process is recorded. Luckily, Photoshop. In Photoshop? That is that what you guys yeah, use? Yeah, yeah, so Photoshop is typically used. And luckily, that'll record all the steps, right? Mm -hmm. You could record all these steps because you're going to need a record of all the steps you took to create the enhanced image. And in court, in order to get that admitted, what you would have to do is produce the original, produce all of the lists of the steps that you took to create the enhancement. And the idea is that the, de the defense or, or another expert could look at that and say, and, and could create the same thing you created, could start with the same original, do all the steps that you did and create the same enhancement. Um, and that's what would be re required to get it admitted. So level two enhancements require a lot more documentation. Uh, do, do you use any uh, sort of uh, infrared or ultraviolet imaging on crime scenes? Or yeah, is this you all know, straight? It, uh, uh, funny that with, all of the benefits of digital photography, one of the things we lost early on was, was infrared um, because the cameras all have infrared filters built into them, right? So we could no longer do a lot of the work we were doing with infrared, especially in handwriting analysis, where we could use infrared light to create certain different uh, ver versions of, of handwriting. So if somebody used two different inks, you know, added a digit onto a check, but used two different inks, uh, the infrared light may, may make one digit drop out and a different wavelength of infrared light would make another digit drop out and you could determine that it was different wavelengths. But there are digital cameras that will record there. Yeah. And the, or, or standard cameras that could be modified. Do you use any of these? Yeah, so the Fuji IR camera came out and, and that was great. That solved that problem. The Fuji IR camera came out with all, all you know, came with a kit with all of the uh, IR lenses that, that, that we needed and uh, really solved that problem. 
And uh, those things were just excellent. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about new technologies in forensic photography. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at bhphotovideo, hashtag bhphotopodcast. We are back. Uh, Mike, we want to take a step back a little bit and talk about uh, the type, the levels of photography that are used in, in forensic uh, imaging. You, you have your basic imaging where it comes in, they just document the scene. Then you have a little more advanced. Could you get into that a little bit more? Things that, you again, general scenes, and then you're looking for specifics. What are they and how do you do it? Yeah, I'll, um, John asked before about the process, and I was talking about capturing the scene and wide-angle views and then moving into what we call mid-range views to relate the item of evidence to a fixed point in the scene and then close-up views of, of an item of evidence that show the details of the item. Maybe the serial number on a firearm would be, you know, wouldn't be readable in the, in the overview photo, but it would be in the close-up. Um, but in the close-up, you wouldn't be able to tell, well, what's the context? Where is the firearm within right. the scene? So it takes all of them to paint the picture. Um, but there's another class of photos that, that I would call scientific quality photos. So scientific quality photos is where the photo actually becomes an item of evidence that needs to be examined in a laboratory. And that takes place with impression evidence, tool marks. So uh, let's give an instance of a, of, a, of a bloody fingerprint found on a concrete wall. The concrete wall can't be collected and taken into the laboratory to be examined. So it's going to be the photograph of the fingerprint on the wall that actually serves as the evidence. It's actually going to be the item that's examined. Those scientific quality photos require a lot more um, diligence in capturing them. And really, they're the, those type of photos are what dictate the need for high-quality photography equipment and crime scene work. I imagine that... Uh uh, to some degree, talent plays a role. I mean, you, you need to understand angles and how light bounces off things to to get as much information as you possibly can. And and you see photographers who's who develop their craft over the years. And and even for example, as you were describing before, where you have your wide shot and then you, you'll have your close up shot. But sometimes understanding how they work together is not that easy. And and to get the proper angles. Is, is a talent that must be developed o over years. Is that true? Yeah, that's yeah. absolutely true. We, we teach uh, you know, uh, in New York City crime scene investigators, they're already seasoned police officers, um, so they have all of that background behind them, but now they need to learn the, the technician aspect of being a crime scene investigator, and that's 400 hours of training that they receive before they'll go out on their first case. Is there an apprentice program, or do they train you and just send you out? No, after that initial 400 hours of training, they'll go out with a seasoned investigator. The investigator will be the lead uh, crime scene investigator on the case while, while the, uh, the newer assigned crime scene investigator observes and assists. And then through a period of, of uh, experience through that type of a program, then eventually they'll start actually handling cases as the lead crime scene investigator. You, and you have to be a seasoned officer before you even get in there. It's not like you could just sign up and be hired and you are now a forensic photographer. You have to be a, a cop first. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. All of the crime scene investigators in New York City are sworn police officers. So they're already experienced patrol officers. They may have some investigative background in different units before they arrive at the crime scene unit. Okay. That's, the, a, that's interesting. Now, the police department has uh, photographers. 
uh, we have a photo unit um, at One Police Plaza, um, and those are professional photographers, where the crime scene investigators are more photography technicians capturing photos at, at the crime scene. And, and those photographers uh, in the photo unit, what is their role in general? So uh, I talked earlier, we were talking, uh, you know, prior to like the early 1970s, it was the photo unit that went out to crime scenes and documented them in, in you know, typically in the, the old full frame uh, cameras, you know. And the 35 millimeter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they were also um, doing, I imagine, grip and grin and uh, ribbon cutting ceremonies as yeah. well within the, you know. So n now uh, they do, yeah, primarily uh, ceremonial type events. Gotcha. Um, and historical type of events for the police department where the, cr the crime scene documentation has sort of been handed over to the crime scene photographers. But the crime scene unit does rely on them for their expertise, their ability to uh, enhance photos, uh, print photos. Uh, it's still, they still rely on the photo unit heavily. And how, this is obviously depends on every crime scene, but how many photographs are, are going to be taken of, of a scene or, or how much level of documentation are you going to try to get? At what point do you say, okay, I got it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> you, you have one shot, of course, yeah, so you have to make sure you got it. When we went from film to digital, of course, as you would expect, we saw the number of photos we were capturing at scenes shoot up through the roof, <laughs> yeah, and that's fine. I don't think a crime scene investigator would ever be disciplined or looked down on by, for capturing too many photos, um, but it certainly does lead to excess uh, and, and, and unneeded work. Um, so... Basically, you, you want to capture the scene. You have to think a little bit outside the box because maybe you have a homicide scene and the, that body is located inside the house. Uh, but you have to think, well, the perpetrator had to get into the house and had to flee the house, so we also have to capture the outside. We don't know what's there. And maybe the street, up and down the street to show you know, access routes or maybe out in the backyard you know, we find some footwear impressions the next yard over. Maybe they're associated to the crime, maybe they're not, but it's going to have to be documented. So, um, Obviously, the, the idea is to err on the side of, uh, of caution yeah, or, or, yeah. and get as much as you possibly can. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And there also has, has to be some limitation, too. We can't, you can't just go and, you know, where does it end? Right? Mm -hmm. It has to end somewhere. So there has to be some investigative reasoning mm -hmm. injected into the process. And how do you, I mean, what about filters are, are they still used or is that, is that kind of gone the way with digital and and like let's say for example there's a, a fingerprint on a window on a clear window uh, how do you capture that um yeah so definitely the, there's there's a lot of filters that we still use and uh you know anything to cut down the glare uh, um uv filters are pretty common you know, mostly to protect the lens but still use them and circular polarizing filters to cut down glare and you know, sometimes you get a evidence that's in a puddle of water on a rainy day and it's very hard to capture a shell casing in a puddle of water because you know of course you get the glare from the sky and the on a, and the polarizing filters would help tremendously with that so what about axial lighting can you explain that a bit yeah so I use more with the close-up photography work um, but we will use that uh, we will use a lot of uh, uh, slave units uh, slave flashes that create axial lighting or uh, even handheld lights, uh, especially with three-dimensional impressions, uh, say a footprint in, in, impressed in dirt, probably the, the photographs of the footprint are going to be better evidence than a plastic cast of the footprint. The plastic just doesn't pick up en as enough detail sometimes. But 
the photograph typically will, but the lighting requirements to create shadowing and, and to show the details of the impression become really important. So the lighting on something like that is, is really critical. And a series of photos would be required moving the lights in different positions. One might re well, one photo might reveal good detail in the toe of the footwear impression, and the other one might record good detail on the heel of the impression based on the lighting. To, is it safe to assume that the mold is still taken of a footprint? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I imagine that has certain attributes because, again, if there's a question about shoe size yeah, specifically, shoe size, right. of that, well, shoe size, shoe brand, but the small, minute defects are what make that footwear impression unique. So, you know, if we were all wearing uh, Bruno Mali shoes, um, you know, size 10 Bruno Mali is an expensive shoe, but there's a lot of them. And that's all I wear, by the yeah. way. <laughs> and I'm <laughs> and, a size eight and a half, but I yeah. saw only tens. And I bring up Bruno Mali, that brings us back to uh, <laughs> oh, yes. uh, OJ. OJ. Um, <laughs> I knew exactly where you were coming from. <laughs> but those shoes are all the same when, when they're, they're made. They may mass produce them, right? Okay. Maybe they produce hundreds of pairs of, of shoes. They all, they're all the same. And as, as OJ said, they're ugly. Yeah. I, he would never wear them. <laughs> um, as, as you wear them and you step on a, you know, maybe a piece of glass or a piece of metal, and it results in small defects in the shoe. The way you walk, the shoe wears a different way than some else walks. Yeah. So these, we call them accidental details, right? So these accidental details that go into now the footwear are what we're looking for in that footwear impression. And typically the plastic cast doesn't pick those small small accidental details up, but photography picks it up extremely well provided the proper lighting is used. That's just, yes, that's right, yep. So it sounds like, I mean, Alan talked about this a bit earlier, you know, having shot in all kinds of situations, uh, it takes time. And it takes, I mean, moving light setups and you need a, you need a couple of people, you need time. Is there pressure on these guys to, to get this stuff done or are they really given the time they're needed to, to do the work? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, sometimes there can be a little bit of pressure, but, but it has to be managed um, because the end result needs to be good quality evidence. Um, and I would imagine but, weather could also be a thing. I know it's raining or it's snowing. you got to work extra fast because evidence is just going away. Sure. I've had crime scenes where you know, as you're starting to photograph the crime scene and process it, you hear the thunder rumbling in the background, then you know your time is limited. Um, so those are things that you can't control, but but some pressure you can control. So anything that can be controlled should be controlled, and typically it is. Uh, the, the first round of photos document the scene in that as-is condition allow you to move in closer and now you could start moving things and maybe start searching the scene uh, you know, to see what's there or maybe there's a firearm at the scene and you want to pick it up and see is it loaded? Was it fired? How many rounds were fired from it? You can't do that until those first few photos are taken to show it in, in its position. So there is pressure early on but once those initial round of photos is, is captured, that pressure goes down tremendously. Can you speak a bit about... Um Interpreting images, again, this is a broad topic and obviously years of experience go into this type of work, but, but seeing, you know, a gun in one position or another, is there anything that you can speak of generally that how, how the photographer works or how the photographer knows this will be interpreted down the line? Um, yeah, so as far as context, we teach, uh, try to create like an equilateral triangle between the subject, the photographer, and some fixed point, and use a normal lens for your camera so we don't introduce distortion and try to use 
a normal eye view. So not crouching down too low, not getting up too high. We want to keep things in proper perspective. Of course, we all know that we could change the lens of the camera and make it look like the gun was very far from somebody's hand. And then I could take it from a different position with a different focal length and make it look like it's very close to somebody's hand. So that needs to be avoided, right? We, we only want the truth and whatever, whatever that is, so be it. Um, so we, we need to follow procedure to be able to, to accomplish that. How does 3D imaging and uh, things like laser scanning come into it? That seems to me that that would eliminate a lot of questions about distance and scale. Yeah, you're right, Al. Um, laser scanning solves that positioning, that, that context issue. Can you explain exactly uh, what the gear is and how it's used? So a laser scanner is a, uh, really a device that's made for originally for engineering applications. So structures could be scanned and modeled. Um, but it's got a niche market, and we found it works really well in forensics. When you scan a scene, what the scanner does is it rotates 360 degrees on a tripod, and it sweeps the laser across the scene. It, as the laser sweeps across the scene, it's capturing millions of points of measurement, each point represented by a dot. If you put millions of those together, you end up with this sort of weird-looking mesh 3D model. Um, each one of those points represents a three-dimensional point in space, so things could be measured extremely accurately after the fact, at any point after the fact, years down the line. Things that you might not have known were important to measure at the scene. Later on, new facts come up, and now you know it's important. You could walk back into your laser scan and capture those measurements. The problem with the laser scans is they're hard for a layperson like a juror to, to understand what they're looking at. So what they did was they incorporated cameras into laser scanners now, and that brings in another dimension. Now those points and that model actually get colorized from the cameras, and you could overlay a 360-degree image on top of your laser scan, and now you could capture good measurements from your 360-degree panoramic images. How is that played back in a court? If say you had to show a jury, NYPD uses Leica laser scanners, and they have a, a product called TrueView. So, of course, you need very expensive software to be able to model the 3D laser scans. But TrueView is a free application. It's like a PDF reader for laser scans. Um, and it allows anybody to view these scans, pan around, well, much like you would in Google Earth. Mm -hmm. hmm. So it's just basically played back on a large screen yeah. in front of... Okay. pan around, zoom in, zoom out, click on points, take measurements. Um, anybody with really no training is able to use TrueView. Hmm. You'd spoken earlier on, uh, on PanoScan technology is that yeah. something that is still being used or is it already eclipsed no uh nypd has cameras uh, they're medium format cameras similar to the laser scan but takes the uh, laser part out of it and just captures very high resolution 360 degree panoramic images of the scene um the, the laser scanner captures 360 degree images but the resolution is nowhere near what the pano scan achieves with it's a medium format camera um a company out of California that really does a tremendous job uh, with their camera system. And they have they manufactured their own light, so you could actually have light that pans the scene with the camera. I imagine that fills a lot of holes that can come up. Like you're on a scene, and a week later, a month later, you think back that I don't remember. I don't. There, there's certain things you can't get. It seems to me that this would enable you to really go back to the scene. Yeah, it allows you, the jury the defense, everybody to walk back into the scene and get a look. Um, and is that standard it, now? Is that going to be at every crime scene? It's becoming more and more standard, particularly on 
the higher priority scenes. Um, the equipment's expensive. It takes time to capture these things and process the data. So it's not something that could be done on just routine scenes, but it's done more and more uh, in New York City. Does Panascan have the same uh, abilities to uh, check distances and things of that sort, measurements between point A, point B, and C, and all that? So Panoscan has their own product called Panometric, um, which is a photogrammetry product. And it allows you to extract measurements from that high-resolution image. There are some limitations that once you get a, a too far from away from the camera lens, there's parallax issues that come in and, and mm. the uh, accuracy of those measurements start to drop. But within a 25 or 30-foot radius of, of the uh, camera, the, the measurements are pretty accurate. So, so essentially, you're just putting this thing into the center of the scene and it's doing everything. Do, would you also put it off to one corner to have different Im images taken from, say, four corners of the room? Or yeah. does it depend? And then much like you know, people would be familiar with going on a uh, website to, you know, if they're home shopping and want to you know, take a virtual tour of a home, they could jump from room to room and look at the panoramic photos. It's been going through my head. I know. Yeah. Yes, that's same, what I'm thinking. Same thing could be created with the panel scans. Yeah. Right. Right. Interesting. Okay. And are they the same officers that, that using that technology, or do you bring in the company to? Uh, uh, same officers. Uh, the crime scene investigators have been trained to use the product. Mm -hmm. And can you talk about any uh, any other newer technology? I mean, this is not quite new, but uh, is there something on the horizon that may may change things radically, or or what are you looking at? Is VR coming into the scene? Uh, we ha I haven't really seen VR in, in crime scene investigation yet. Um, it seems to me it'd be a natural. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what I am seeing is more and more uh, laser scanning, uh, mobile applications, handheld applications where the laser scanner uh, could move about the crime scene rather than being in a fixed position on, on the uh, tripod. Mm. How about using a, uh, your cell phone? Does anyone snap photos? Do guys just shoot something to have their own the, image with them, or is that? Well, not to have their own image, but we the patrol officers are encouraged to use patrol officers in New York City are all equipped with cell phones and they are encouraged to use it to capture initial images of, of a scene. Um, I gave instances before where things may have to be disturbed because you're searching for a subject or maybe you have to make way for an ambulance crew to get through and furniture has to be moved. So we would definitely encourage patrol officers uh, to use the cameras that they have on their phones to capture an image or two um, of course, those are not the same as the crime scene images, but at least we have some record of what it looked like before things were disturbed. And are, I mean, now that body cams are being used more, is it, will that be used for investigation and and, pro, and prosecution? Yeah, uh, if body I would cams. There's distortion issues with body cams. Yeah, there, there's this, there's a lot of issues with body cams and with dash cams. You know what they capture, what the distortion is. Uh, you know, they don't capture. You know, when people tend to look at it, laymen tend to look at it, they think it captures what the person saw. Uh, of course it doesn't, you know, this peripheral vision issues. And, um, but those types of things are definitely going to play more and more important role as time goes on in investigations, um, especially in officer-involved shootings, use of force incidents that are uh, getting a lot of attention, of course, nowadays. Those types of things will play heavily into those investigations. Mm -hmm. There are cameras, for example, Rico makes a, a camera that's resistant to chemicals. And, and do you have any need for this kind of stuff? It's an interesting question. Um, so that camera, the G800, mm -hmm. um, is extremely useful for what we call hazardous environment crime scenes. So 
there are some crime scenes, you know, back in 2001 after, after we had the anthrax attacks. Mm -hmm. So you have a letter in a mail room that contains what you believe to be anthrax. That's a crime scene, right? That letter needs to be documented and collected and processed. Maybe there's fingerprints on it. Maybe there's DNA on it. How do you do that? You know, the, the evidence itself could kill anybody that handles it, right? Um, so we have hazardous materials teams that can handle that type of, of environment. We also have crime scene investigators who are trained to operate in that type of environment, but there's limitations. So can you bring in your Nikon D700 kit and get it out of there? The camera is going to get contaminated. There's no way to get it in, capture the images, and get the images back out. It won't survive the decontamination process, which would require showering and scrubbing. But a camera like that, uh, the, the Ricoh G800, would be really well suited for that type of environment. Okay, yeah, so they are used. And uh, one thing we didn't talk about too much is uh, is photographing blood. I know that can be obviously the color issues and, and reflections. And how is that dealt with? Um, yeah, so the blood generally absorbs light, you know, and it's going to look much darker on the photographs than it does in. in in person. Do you spectrometers uh, on the scene to measure the color at all? Because a photograph, you can't really capture that. Yeah. We we don't, but that's a lot where the IR, IR photography comes in as well. So we may have, uh, say, blood stains on our dark red garment. And in the photographs, they're not, they're not going to show up too good. But that's where we could use IR photography or even UV light where the blood won't, won't fluoresce in UV light but it does absorb UV light, so it'll appear really dark. Although we'll lose the color context, we will be able to see the perimeter of the stain and the, the location of the stain. Um, so IR and UV become really important. Are there incidents where uh, the, the crime scene unit photographer has disrupted the scene, possibly accidentally, or, or, or done things that maybe ruined the... the, the uh, so scenarios. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Think, yeah. <laughs> uh, I can't think of any that, that, that actually ruined the scene, but I, of course, and especially before digital, there was issues where you thought you captured something only to discover later on after the prints come back that uh, you, you didn't, or, yeah. or maybe the depth of field was off. Or I could remember a case where... Uh, a wife was accused of shooting and killing her husband while he slept. She was eventually convicted of that. But she had an injury on her hand, and the weapon that was used was a semi-automatic firearm. So when you fire it, the slide of the firearm comes back, rides back, and chambers the next round. Um, and if you're not experienced with handling firearms and you hold it in the wrong position, when that slide comes back, it may cut your hand up around the, your thumb. Um, because you're not familiar with the firearms and you had your hand in the wrong position. That seemed to have occurred in that case, and we had some photographs of this woman's hands showing that injury, and it, it, we thought it was going to be critical evidence, but when the prints came back, the photographer had the subject stand with the hands out and had the point of focus down on the floor down below, oh. and the depth of field was, was, was lost, and of course the... You could make out the injury to the hand, but you didn't have good details. And if an uh, image, for I'm sorry, is not technically perfect in that case, can they still be used uh, as long as 
let's say, you know, for the jury and the judge, it's clear even though the image is not technically perfect. Yeah, in the movies, they could take anything and make them sharp. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> bring, uh, bring that in closer. Right? <laughs> it, it would definitely subject it to uh, a sharp defense attorney objecting to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What the, what, what's the strangest piece of evidence you've ever found in a crime scene? And I'll follow it up with another question. Where was the strangest evidence you've ever found? In the uh, I found scene? some some extremely strange things. Some of it probably can't be talked about on a on a, our show <laughs> here. We'll talk, we'll talk later. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I remember one case when you talk about the the strangest uh, place that I had to go was. Uh, in New York City several years back, the Thanksgiving parade was held, and of course they have the big giant floats. And on Broadway, as the M&M float was coming down, a gust of wind hit the M&M balloon and blew it off course a little bit, and it wound up taking down part of a uh, streetlight pole. And unfortunately, there was a young girl that was seriously hurt. Um, so there, there was a lot of uproar over that. How could this happen? And this poor girl was out to enjoy a nice day to watch the parade and was injured. So the mayor uh, promised that there'd be a full investigation. That investigation resulted in me having to go track down the M&M balloon. And I come to find out Did you that have a warrant? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was a blue M&M. Um, Were agents sent to airports and bus terminals? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I located the blue M&M uh, out in Hoboken. Um, and that's where Macy's factory is, where they where they uh, make the floats and all the artists are there to paint them and design them and a uh, really fascinating place. Um, but that was an unfortunate incident, but but it was very interesting. I had to go there, track down the M&M balloon and Which was, examine it, photograph it. And what it was kind deflated of evidence at that point? Look- it, it was deflated at that point, right? It was deflated, but uh, and, and depressed. we depressed, brought yeah. it out yeah. and uh, <laughs> actually reinflated it um, on their floor there, their work floor. But is um, that considered a crime? Uh, we weren't sure. Yeah. Um, in the end, it wasn't a crime. It was really just a tra- tragic accident. And what were you looking for? Uh, <laughs> how did this happen? Uh, you know, what, I'm assuming you didn't interrogate this uh, balloon. No. <laughs> he wore it, it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been an education. It really has been. Mike, before we uh, end the show, you retired a few years ago, and you've sort of you're still working. Uh, could you tell us a little bit what you're up to right now? You're with Leeds. Tell us about that, and anything else you've done since you retired. Yeah, so I left the police department in 2012 after a lot of consideration, but I uh, was in my 27th year, and I decided to pursue some other opportunities. So I work uh, for Homeland Security. Uh, I'm an instructor. I work in their hazardous uh, materials investigation team for forensic incidents. And we travel around the country training first responders and how to process crime scenes that are contaminated, like the one we talked about earlier with the anthrax situation. Um, and then I also work, I'm a manager at uh, Leeds LLC. Uh, we provide law enforcement solutions for investigations, incident, and intelligent management. Uh, so we work closely in New York City. We provide solutions for case management systems. And they're solutions that, especially for photography, could manage your digital f- photos, put, put them in the proper case folders, share those case folders with investigators. So criminal investigations, teamwork. You might have a homicide, and the detectives assigned to investigate the homicide. But it needs the crime scene investigators to process the scene, document it, collect the evidence a lot of players wind up involved. 
how do you manage all of that information? We talked about this digital technology now. How do you manage all of this information? So our systems allow them to manage it, share it, secure it, and archive it. Uh, so that's what we do. And so your clients are police departments around the country? Yeah, strictly law enforcement. Uh, law so you're enforcement still agencies. very much in the game. Yeah, um, not out there as much as I'd like to be out there investigating the incident, but I'm still in the game. One question I can't resist asking you, where does the police department get their gear? <laughs> <laughs> Same place everybody else, B&H Photo. <laughs> so, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, we're a big B&H customer, and uh, a lot of the gear came came through B&H, and uh, we had a really good relationship with them, and uh, they always had what we needed. We were a Nikon shop. They had everything we needed, usually right in stock. So, uh, And plus being in New York City and having B&H Photo right here and being able to get the support from them, how often do you guys so, do? Is there how often do you re up? How often do you look to, to buy a new set of cameras, or is that? Uh, um, it's you know, of course, for a large crime scene unit like New York City, there's sixty or seventy crime scene investigators equipping them all with uh, new new camera kits. Uh, could be quite costly, so it can't be done on a whim. But they are cognizant of keeping. So you keeping cycle up with through stuff in little series. You go through and replace yeah. them in bunches. And of course, being an icon shop. Uh, you know, if we we stick with them, then yeah, we have the glass. We we don't have to re replace the whole kit. We just could just replace camera bodies. Yeah. Did you guys ever just reach out to Nikon to see if they could do something? For uh, Nikon was great too. Nikon uh, has a, a forensic program within Nikon. They provide a lot of uh, training, no cost. Um, oh, that's So because we were at Nikon shop, we were entitled to that too. They also had a uh, a nice uh, option where we could borrow special gear from them. So it wasn't very often, but they, if, if you were registered... Is that Nikon Professional Services yeah, you referred yeah, to? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So mm -hmm. we were able to borrow yeah, for a specific uh, purpose, maybe a special lens or something if we needed it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I guess it, it, this is like an open bid process. You have to you have to look to everybody and, and B&H met the, uh, yeah, the, the cost. So, yeah, when, yeah. City, when the city's purchasing, they have their purchasing requirements they'll follow and uh, a lot of pur larger purchases go out to bid and and, uh, you know, the winning bid uh, gets the contract. And they went to B&H. Thank you to our guest, Mike Cunningham. Thank you to my producer, John Harris, and to Jason Tables. And most of all, thank you, our listeners, for tuning in all the time. Remember to leave a review on iTunes if you have a moment. And if you have any questions or comments, send them to podcast at bhphoto.com. And as always, thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs>